Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am an antichrist. I am an anarchist. I'm still Kev. <laughs> Hello, Kev. How are you? I'm uh, not not too bad. I have um, I've recovered from the Rona. Yeah. So for people listening, we haven't done a recording for a while. So what's it? Four weeks since we last yeah. did our recording because um, you have had the plague. I have indeed. Um, and what I can what I can say to our listeners is that I'm very very grateful that I was double vaccinated because. Um, I probably would have been in hospital had had I not been. So if you've not been jabbed, do it because it's a really good idea. Yeah, get your jabs. And even if you have had your jabs, you know, take sensible precautions because it can still fuck you up, uh, as Kevin can attest to. Yes, it kicked the shit out of me for about two weeks. So, you know, take all the precautions you can. I mean, this is possibly the earliest we've ever got onto our soapbox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about some music? I think I think we probably should, yeah. Okay, so we're in Britpop season, and Kev, what albums are we doing this week and next week? So uh, this week we will be uh, running through Elastica's debut album, Elastica, clever name. And next week we um, will be going through Suede's third album, Coming Up. Great stuff. And why have you chosen these two to go up against each other? So I chose these two um, because both bands um, were sort of central to the to the Britpop scene, I suppose, um, and particularly the two lead characters um, within each band. So Brett Anderson, Justine Frischman. Justine Frischman went out with Brett Anderson. She was a member of a founding member of Suede, and obviously she had. And as we discussed on a previous class. Um, she was partner of uh, Damon Albarn, and there are there are myriad links between the two bands. And as I say, they are central to the kind of story of Britpop, really. They certainly are, and the romantic entanglements that you have just mentioned will definitely be coming up again in this week's show. Certainly. <laughs> but before that, shall we do some "Can't Get You Out of My Head"? Yes, I think I think we should. So, Kev, what have you had stuck in your head for the last four weeks? So, um, before I get on to my uh, good choice, I mean, it's not the song that I'm going to bring up. It's not really a bad song. It's just a song that has been stuck in my head. We were doing some uh, cleaning in the house the other day and going through some bills, and we like again came up with a with a silly song that, as you have said before, you two are wont to do. Yes, um, similar to and similar to your to Jean Genie. <laughs> um, so when putting some of the bills into the like the shredding and stuff like that, I came across some water bills, which I then sang along. Water bills, water bills, water bills, water, water, water bills. <laughs> nice. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Which, if, you, if you're not aware of it, it's What a Man by uh, Salt and Pepper. Which is absolutely not a bad song, by the way. I no, love it's a, that. It's, it's a belter. But um, yeah, so if you see a water bill, you can always sing Water Bill, Water Bill, <laughs> Water, Water, Water Bill. Great stuff. <laughs> uh, so I do have a shite song I want to call out. Uh, it's a shite song that, that has been stuck in my head because of researching this clash, actually. And 
it's another reminder that not everything came out of the 90s is worth commemorating and celebrating. Uh, Trouble by Shampoo. Oh, God. Yeah, exactly. So I was reading an article on Pitchfork about, you know, the best Britpop acts as part of research in this. Mm-hmm. And, like, not only was Shampoo on that list of the best Britpop acts, but they were at number 17. What? <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, it said that, the, that We Are Shampoo was the 17th best Britpop album ever released. I mean, I can honestly say that I've not listened to Shampoo's album, so I, it could it could well be an absolute belter. Um, but based on their um, single output, I'm gonna say it's probably not. Yeah, I mean, what I will say, it is a relentlessly catchy song. So once it gets it worms its way into your head, it's gonna be there for a while. Yeah, it's it is um, it's as catchy as syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> or coronavirus. Yeah, or coronavirus. <laughs> but I have learned something through that research. So I had always assumed that they were put together and an image created for them, you know, in the, in the same way the Spice Girls were two years later. And in fact, the phrase girl power came from uh, the first single from Shampoo's second album. Right. Um, but that is not the case. They formed... Uh, because they were friends and together wrote a fanzine for the Manic Street Preachers. Uh, right, okay. No, Shampoo were Manic's fans. Did they have tiny backpacks? <laughs> <laughs> well, so the, the, I certainly remember images of Shampoo where uh, at least one of them had a feather boa. So it definitely <laughs> fits. <laughs> like massive Nicky Wire fans. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's my shite. Okay, so what uh, what good stuff have you been listening to? Okay, so uh, it's a fairly new one for me. And it's the new single by Rebecca Lucy Taylor, a.k.a. Self-Esteem. It's called How Can I Help You? It is an absolutely furious, banging feminist anthem, mm. which basically takes aim at the objectification of women. It's got huge, booming drums. She's absolutely spitting the fury throughout it. It's worth giving a shout out to the video. And I don't usually do this this early in the show, but I'm going to read a quote from her. So it was about three or four weeks ago. So what's the date today? It's the 10th of September. So it's about three or four weeks ago that, that the song dropped. And when it came out, she gave an interview to the enemy. And so in the video, she is playing the drums, sort of wearing a, a sports bra and, and, and a pair of shorts. And I want to call that out because she said in that interview, I wanted to play the drums in the video to reclaim how often I used to feel self-conscious playing them. The physical act of a woman playing a drum means that your tits move. And all I ever wanted to do was play, but it always came with a fear of being looked at that way. Now my tits move for me, my song, my video. I'm also aware it's probably a nice watch if you're that way inclined, but I'm afraid if you want to watch it, you're going to have to hear what I've got to say. Click for the tits, stay for the feminism. Brilliant. I mean, that's that's quite the statement. It is. So I um, I really like self esteem, and I'm really really looking forward to uh, to the new album. Yeah, go and check out. How can I help you? It's really good. Good stuff. What about you? My good stuff was uh, something new. And when we were due to record this before uh, before the Rona, um, it only just come out. So it's a song by um, a group called Green Tea Peng featuring uh, Simi and Kid Cruise, and it's called Free My People, and it's a bit of dreamy neo-soul, um, something a bit different for us. Mm. 
really gorgeous sounding, chilled out. It's it's dead good. Strong recommend. Great stuff. As ever, we will tweet out the links to those, put them on our Insta page, but also something new. We have created, so I'm on YouTube Music, and I think you're on Spotify, aren't you, Kev? Yeah, that's right. We have created playlists for our Can't Get You Out of My Head choices. Not the shite songs, because <laughs> no, why would we do that to you? But yeah, we have created the Album Clash Can't Get You Out of My Head playlist. So you can actually listen right back to the first ones we did. Everything we've called out in our tips of the hat for you to go and listen to. So check it out. Yeah, check it out. Um, so at the, at the time of recording, the uh, Spotify one hasn't been done yet because I haven't done it. Yes, but at the time of release, it will be. That's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's on YouTube now because I did it about three weeks ago and I've been listening to it. It's great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so check that out. Uh, and as ever, give us your suggestions for your can't get you out of my head picks. Right. Shall we do some top trumps? Yes. So I'm 3-1 down and I've had a bad run of things. I'm feeling a bit more confident today, though. Uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be a close one. I think so. Anyway, as you've uh, won again last time out, it's your pick first. What are you going for? Okay, I'm going to go for sales. And my sales for um, coming up, uh, 1.5 million. Uh, yeah, yeah, you win that. I mean, it's close, 1 million for, for Elastica, but um, yeah, you win. Boom. Um, certifications, so UK platinum. Um, oh, fuck. And in, in Scandinavia, very successful. Gold in Norway and gold in Sweden. Well, there you go. Scandinavians like a bit of Brett Anderson, clearly. <laughs> um, so... Gold in US and Canada. In the UK, gold as well. So you win. Ah, okay. Shit. Maybe my confidence was misplaced. Okay, now 2 0 down already, and we've hardly got going. Go on. Okay, I think I I may fall down here. So charts. Yep. UK, number one. Ditto. US, didn't chart. Ooh, 66 for Elastica. Get in. Wow. Pulled it back. I mean, as we'll get on to, this was a popular album in America. Yes. What am I going to go for next? I'm going awards. Okay. So Elastica was nominated for the Mercury Music Prize in 96. They were nominated for the Best Newcomer Award at the Brits in that same year. They won the NME Award for Best Newcomer in 95. And they won the Rolling Stone Listener's Choice Award for Best New Band in 1995. So two big nominations, but two wins. Absolutely spanked me there. Oof. The, so coming up was nominated for the 97 Mercury Music Prize. And that's it. Wow. Right. Ju- just before we get on to, um, on to the, the rest of this, can we just talk about how weirdly named the Mercury Prize is now? Is it not still called the Mercury Music Prize? Well, yeah, but that's the point because it like it was named the Mercury after the sponsor, which was Mercury. I think Mercury Telephones. And didn't they become orange? Yeah, um, <laughs> but it's still called. So on the day of recording, it's the night after the Mercury's last night. So it's the Hyundai Mercury Music Prize now. Well, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't at all. Unless Hyundai have got a car called the Hyundai Mercury, in which case it's a brilliant marketing ploy on their part. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yes, congratulations to Arlo Parks for succeeding. 
Indeed, I'm not. I can't say as I'm. I'm a hugely. I know. I know of Arlo Parks, but I can't say as I've. I've listened to a great deal of her oeuvre. So, um, but yeah, yeah. All right. So two two. Okay. Where um, am I going next? It's my choice. You lost. Simmer down. <laughs> I'm feeling good about critics. I'm not. I'm not so confident on lists, but I'm feeling good about critics. So let's go with that. Right. All music. Four and a half out of five. Ditto. Okay. NME, nine out of ten. Eight out of ten. Oh, takes the lead. Rolling Stone, four out of five. Three out of five. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you need a big, you need a big margin of victory here. Pitchfork, eight and a half out of ten. Seven point nine. Get in! I can't be beaten. Right. Okay. Good stuff. So that's 3-2 to me. I mean, Rolling Stone and Pitchfork are sort of both more, much more Americanized publications. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to the fact, as you said earlier, coming up didn't chart in the US. Elastica was a big album over there. Yeah. So uh, get in. Well in. Right. It's all down to where they've come in the lists. So first thing is I couldn't find any mention of Elastica in the Rolling Stone top 500 lists. So there's that. I'm not sure if coming up appeared in them at all. No. Okay. So this is what I have got for Elastica. In 95, Rolling Stone voted it the fourth best album of the year, which considering the other things Mm -hmm. came out in 95, wow. Yeah. In 2013, in their top 500 list, NME put Elastica at number 191. And in that top 50 Britpop albums on Pitchfork I mentioned earlier in 2017, Elastica was voted number six. What can you do compared to that? Um, So again, you have kicked the living shit out of me. So what I what I do have is that it was number 10 in the best Britpop albums list via The Village Voice in 2014. And <laughs> it's 195th in Colin Larkin, whoever the fuck Colin Larkin is, <laughs> top 1,000 albums list. I think he wrote a book on the top 1,000 albums. 195th, that's high. <laughs> uh, so The Village Voice ranking surprises me. Given what we were just saying a few minutes ago about its lack of popularity in the States, The Village Voice is an American publication, Mm -hmm. so someone likes it over there. Although, since Nobby McGee wrote for The Village Voice for a long time, I wouldn't necessarily say that's praise. (laughs) Well, and I think what we can say, and certainly will go on to say when we, particularly when we go through uh, coming up, is that, and as as obviously we've we've talked about, is that it was successful commercially. but their previous work was uh, far more praised by by the critics, particularly the first album, which was critically lauded at the time. Yeah, it was, and we're, we're going to talk about that a lot, a lot next week. But not this week because we're going to be going through Elastica. Indeed. Shall I start taking us through Elastica? Let's go. Right. Okay. So Elastica was, as Kev's already said, the debut album from Elastica. It was released on the 14th of March, 1995, in the UK on Deceptive Records and in the US on Geffen. 
Now, we've already said it reached number one in the UK chart. It actually debuted at number one. That is significant because it was released on the same day as Radiohead's second album, The Bents, which is a huge selling album and a hugely cultural icon of this era. And yet Elastica beat it to number one. Well, and I, I mean, Pablo Honey had been successful, but I suppose with with Elastica because of uh, Justin Frieshman's involvement in Suede and involvement around uh, sort of Blur and everything like that, that high, it was highly hyped before it, before it came out. There was a lot of anticipation and because the band were really good. That's, that's what we've really got to say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hold on to both of those thoughts because I'm going to be talking about that a lot <laughs> in the next few minutes. Okay, so it was recorded at Conk Studios uh, in London, which is a studio used by the Kinks. I think it was owned by the Kinks, wasn't it, in fact? I believe so, yeah. Produced by the band themselves and Mark Waterman. Okay, there's a lot of background to this, and Kev's already sort of alluded to some of it, but let's start delving into it. So, as you said earlier, Justine Frischman and the drummer Justin Welsh, they'd both been members of Suede. Justine was a founder member of Suede. She had met Brett Anderson at University College London, where she studied architecture. She studied architecture at University College. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't St. Martin's College. (laughs) (laughs) No, it wasn't. Uh, So in an interview with Radio 1 in the year 2000, she said, Brett was doing planning. I convinced him to move over to architecture, so we were doing the same course. They quickly became uh, romantically involved. And Brett had a strong influence on Justine Frischman's musical tastes. So in that same interview, she said, I'd be playing in Van Morrison and he'd be playing me stuff like the Mondays and the Fall. In the end, he won. And I just stopped playing him things and just started listening. Before we before we get on to like the influence that those bands may well have had, I mean, I can't hear a Monday sound in Suede at all, but I'll put that aside for a second. Brett Anderson as a town planner is quite the, <laughs> quite the wild idea. <laughs> A really good point. <laughs> so I've, I've um, planned out a space where you can spank yourself with a microphone. <laughs> and take some crack. <laughs> this youth <laughs> club is now a crack den. <laughs> More on which next week? <laughs> <laughs> right, back to where we were. So, as you said, they formed Suede, along with guitarist Bernard Butler and bassist Matt Osman. Again, same interview, Justin Fishman said, I'd been in Suede a couple of years. Basically, I was keeping quiet and playing with a guitar. Brett and I both failed our third year at college. I decided to go back and redo my third year, and he carried on with Suede. During that year, Suede got huge. I suppose I was a bit jealous, but more than anything, I think it made me feel that it was possible to get a deal and get somewhere. Being in a band where I hadn't had that much input really helped in a way because I got the chance to get frustrated and think what I would do if it was up to me. I definitely wanted to keep it simple because playing guitar in a band with Bernard also playing guitar made me really resent guitar solos and actually want to keep the whole thing very punky and to the point. (laughs) That's a long quote, but I wanted to read it because that gets to the heart of the sound of this album. Yes, definitely. And I think... I think it's important to to point out that unlike many of their contemporaries who were highly influenced by 60s sound, so obviously there's the Oasis Beatles stuff, which we talked about before, it is a bit weird like how they get linked together because sound-wise they're not necessarily the same. But anyway, 
is the Elastica sound like no one else at this time? Because they're much more influenced by post-punk, by New Wave, you know, like the strong elements of Gang of Four about them. Stronger elements of some other bands that we'll talk about in a few minutes. (laughs) Well, yeah. And funnily enough, some of the bands that came in a later wave, sort of Franz Ferdinand and Block Party, Elastica would have sat so much more comfortably in that movement because of their sound was very akin to to what those bands were doing. They were nothing like any of their contemporaries, really. No, they weren't, and certainly not... Well, as swayed as we just talked about, or Blur. Indeed, yeah, because Blur were highly influenced by the Kinks and, mm-hmm. you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And obviously, everyone knows that Suede's basic... Well, ripping off is probably... Is probably a bit harsh, but certainly were strongly influenced by Bowie and um on mm. T-Rex. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, back to Elastica. So by the summer of 1992, Justin Frischman and Brett Anderson had split up, and she was by then in a relationship with Damon Orban. And it was at that point that she and Justin Welsh started jamming together with Damon Orban. And basically, that was the genesis of, of what would become Elastica. Annie Holland, who would become the basis for Elastica, she was introduced to the band through a mutual friend, Mark Waterman, who, as I just mentioned, went on to produce the debut album. And she said, I went up, met Justine and Justin. Damon was there, who I didn't recognize at first, but he started playing bass and saying, this is the sort of stuff we do. Because I'd never played bass before, I was just watching his hands and thinking, right, I can copy that. And lo and behold, they asked me to come back the next week and I got into it and I learned to play bass. So there is certainly a differing perspective from the suede side. Okay. So as as you said, by spring 91, Anderson and Friedman split up and she started dating Damon. So, and the situation became tense within suede. So Bernard Butler um, says, so she turn up late for rehearsals and say that say the worst thing in the world, which was I've been on a blur video shoot. That was when it ended, really. I think it was the day after she said that that Brett phoned me up and said, I've kicked her out. Well, fine. And Anderson himself says, if Justine hadn't left the band, I don't think we'd have got anywhere. It was a combination of being personally motivated and the chemistry being right once she'd left. <laughs> Bitter much there, Brett. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't the most harmonious of splits. Well, we've said before when we went through Great Escape that Charmless Man is seemingly about Brett Anderson. So um, there's clearly a rivalry between Damon Arban and Brett Anderson caused by Justine Frischman. <laughs> yeah, without question. So after Annie Holland joined, they became a three-piece but decided they still needed something more. So they placed an advert in Melody Maker saying guitarists wanted influences The Fall, The Stranglers, and wire. Remember all three of those influences, they are important and they will come up again later. Uh, that ad was replied to by 20 year old Welsh guitarist Donna Matthews. She was the standout applicant by a mile. She was invited to join the band. And at that point, they set about trying to get signed by a label. Through Damon, Justine was introduced to Mike Smith from EMI Publishing. Uh, he was persuaded to fund the recording of a demo. That demo started to gain a lot of traction amongst music journalists, and they started to get a bit of an underground following as a result. That helped them get slots supporting, well, Blair, obviously, on a UK tour, but also they went on tour supporting Pulp as well to, to, to support the His and Hers tour. God, I wish I'd been able to go to that tour. Absolutely. 
they eventually signed with small indie label Deceptive. And that deal was agreed at the legendary Camden pub, The Good Mixer, which basically became famed as the the haunt of Britpop artists in the mid-90s. Um, so again, back to that Radio 1 interview, Justine Frischman said, I don't think we even discussed money. It was just a handshake, a packet of peanuts and a cider. And that was about it. Present at that meeting. And in fact, the man who bought the peanuts was the co-founder of Deceptive Records and their A&R man, Steve Lamack. I was aware of that. Steve Lamack at the time was also working, I think he was still with Joe Wiley, on the evening session. So he was one of the people that really promoted the EMI demo that I spoke about and helped to get them that following. And as we've said before, in the mid-90s, the evening session was one of the only places you could go to to listen to. You had the evening session, you had John Peel, you had, oh yeah, that's about it, wasn't it? Well, yeah, until, until like, obviously, Britpop became a thing and Radio 1 embraced it. Yeah, the, you had the evening session and you had Peel. They were your two spots for hearing something that wasn't wasn't pop, really. Mm. Right. Okay. We, we're getting there. We're edging closer to actually talking <laughs> about when the album's released. So in November 93, Elastica released their debut single, Stutter. It was a limited edition, uh, 1,500 copies on seven-inch vinyl. It sold out in less than a day. Uh, so because of the limited release, it only reached number 80 in the UK chart. But again, helped because of the promotion of Steve Mac, it furthered that burgeoning reputation and that burgeoning following that they had on the indie scene. Stutter was followed up in January 94 by Line Up. That was their first major sort of countrywide release, if you like. Got to number 20 in the UK charts, so, which, is, which is for a... Okay, it wasn't their debut single, but say it's their first major single release. Number 20, that's massive. And it earned them their first appearance on Top of the Pops. And that's, this is the first time I came across Elastica. Was seeing, I remember seeing them play that on Top of the Pops. Like, fucking hell, this is great. Yeah, like it, it was like a thing that you talked about. Because, I mean, again, we've talked about Top of the Pops and the, inf- the influence of it is the when you saw something really good on Top of the Pops and it was on a Thursday night when you went into school the next day. Yep. Is that what you talked about? Yep, exactly. That was then followed up in October 94 by Connection, which you all know, and we'll talk about it a bit. Connection got to number 17 in the UK, and it got to 53 on the Billboard Hot 100. And again, so they haven't released an album. It's their first release in the US, and it's got to 53 on the Billboard Hot 100. That is incredible. And it's a song that broke them in the US. That's the song that made this album such a success in the US. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, and it's, a, it's their signature song. Yeah, right. So what we got? Three singles, two of them top 20 in the UK, one of them a big hit in the US, and they still haven't released an album. Now, I want to come back to something you said a few minutes ago about them not fitting into the Britpop mould. And that is something that even at the time, the band try to distance themselves from. So in a in an interview last year with The Telegraph, their former publicist, Polly Birkbeck, she said, Justine didn't want anything to do with that. She made leaps and bounds to distance Elastica from groups who were around in time for 15 minutes. She didn't want to be part of any scene. In 2012, John Harris, in a, in a BBC4 documentary, interviewed Justine Frischman, and she said in that interview, I remember seeing the term Britpop. I think maybe it was in the NME. 
It wasn't in the enemy. We'll talk next week about where that team came from. Uh, just having this horrible feeling that it was going to catch on. Well, yeah. Yeah, because we're literally doing a whole season on it. <laughs> Quite. But as you said, their sound was much more post-punk new wave. They weren't in that mould of, of archness, if that makes sense. I don't even think it's archness. I think it's the... It is literally that their sound wasn't harking back to that sixties element or even seven or even seventies glam. Like yeah. it, it had nothing to do with that. It was much much darker, much harder, and was was influenced by bands who most of their contemporaries weren't referencing at all. Well, as so the ad in the melody maker that we refer to, the Stranglers, Wire, the Fall, all post punk bands. Yeah, and it's it's not and certainly not to pick on any particular. Britpop band, but you couldn't see Oasis referencing the fall. No. Okay. Uh, do you know what? I I think I am about done on background, and I'm sorry, guys. That was a hell of a lot of information to take in. Anything more from you? Or should we talk about the artwork? Uh, let's talk about the artwork. Right. Okay. So it's fairly simple. It's a black and white photograph taken by German fashion photographer Jürgen Teller. It's the band, what I've described as leaning loosely against a brick wall. None of them's looking at the camera. A, a lovely font, nice red, joined up writing. I was about to say, good font game. <laughs> and even though, like I've I've said, that this um, album doesn't necessarily conform to that 60s aesthetic that many of their contemporaries were sort of aping, um, you could argue that the, the cover was influenced by some of the photos of Beatles in uh, Hamburg, maybe. Oh, that's interesting. So I've written down New York Dolls, Stooges, Ramones. I w- the other the other thing I had in mind was like the classic shots of the Ramones. Yeah. It's cool as fuck, though. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it's, it tells you exactly what to expect. It's cool as fuck, this album cover. I mean, like, like a black and white photo of a band posing... In front of a wall, like it's a cla- it's a classic image. As I said, loosely, yeah, an underused word, loose. I'm, I'm reclaiming <laughs> it. I don't know what I'm reclaiming it from, but there you go. Fair enough. I've, I've not got anything else to say about it, though. No, it's a very, it's a very sim, it's effective, but yeah. it's a very simple. And I think the important part, like whilst we whilst we do laugh about my obsession with fonts is the the font and the color are really important because yes it, because that that uh, well elastica stands out so well against that black and white image it's it's really well designed yes it is i agree entirely but as i say i've got nothing else to say about it so how did you first come across elastica as as you as you've already sort of alluded to it was top of the pops them performing on there and just going, fucking hell, it's good that. <laughs> and then obviously, like I bought, I bought the album around around that time, and have known have known it ever since. Although it's, I'm glad that we that we did this clash because it's not one that I've returned to, and I've I now regret that I've haven't done so as often as I probably should have. Do you know, I'm glad you said that because again, peeling back the curtain. Elastica are a group we've talked about quite a lot in the past, and I think it's fair to say when we've had those conversations, I've always spoken about them with much more fondness than you. So I was really pleased when you picked this. As I said earlier, my introduction to Elastica was was seeing them play line up on top of the pops. 
this was one of my what I would call gateway albums. I was into music at the time, but this really got me into that scene. And it's another one that I borrowed off a mate and recorded onto a cassette. <laughs> Never actually bought the album, but I've got a long history with it. Uh, I love it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> I do. This is going to be um, another one of those episodes where it's going to be an entire shock to the audience. Yeah. Um, what you're going to say, what you're going to say yeah. about? Well, to be things. fair, I gave it away last week. I think when you announced the clash, you did really. Okay, we've got 15 tracks to go through. Shall we start doing so? Yeah, I think we should. I said 15 tracks. So for our American listeners, we are going through the UK track listing which is slightly different in order, but also the American release had 16 tracks. See That Animal is not on the UK version. The only thing I'll say about See That Animal is it's good. It's very similar to what's on the rest of the album. I'm sorry to any of you guys if that's your favourite track, but we're based in the UK, so that's the this is the version we heard. Right, okay. We start with lineup. I've already said 31st of January, 94, releases a single. It features on the soundtrack to Kevin Smith's cult slacker classic, Mole Rats, which is a good film. <laughs> okay. I've already mentioned John Harris. In his 2004 book, The Last Party, he said that lineup was a brittle joke at the expense of some unnamed starstruck hanger-on whose life revolved around the parade of groups who passed through the pages of the music papers. Its title came from Justine Frischman's wry observation that the press was in the habit of placing groups on its conveyor belt, well knowing that all but a few would quickly topple off. I mean, it's a fairly thinly veiled attack on groupies, this. It, it, re- it really is, and I really like it. Oh, God, yeah. I've already referenced Gang of Four. I'm going to start referencing Gang of Four because that angular guitar sound at the start is so reminiscent of their stuff. Yeah. It, it could sit on entertainment. It's great. So you said angular, I've said jagged. So not, not quite hive mind today, but <laughs> <laughs> it's great though, isn't it? It's boss. Again, repeat myself, and I'm going to repeat myself throughout. Annie Holland is a fucking phenomenal bassist. That bass line is just wonderful. And Justin Welch is a great drummer. They're such a great tight rhythm section. Yeah, they, they, are a, they are a really good band. Um, and as you say, the rhythm, rhythm section is, is fantastic. So I just want to call out a couple of the lyrics. Again, I mentioned the subject matter and what, what John Harris said about it. Drivelhead knows all the stars, loves to suck their shining guitars, They've all been right up her stairs. Do you care? No. I mean, um, as metaphors go, Justine, it's not exactly subtle. <laughs> no, I mean, it, there's, no, there's not a huge amount of subtext. It's just text. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I mean, this is another thing we've said before. It is an arrival. This is no fucking around. This is what we're about. This is who we are. Have it. Yeah, it's a it's a great statement to start the album. And I, something that um, we're going to talk about a lot again is I know you love a short song and less than three minutes and it just fucking stops. I love songs that just stop. Yeah. Move on. Off you go. Yeah. Less than three minutes. We're done. <laughs> Sound. <laughs> now, I talked about influences before. The melody in the chorus, it bears a striking resemblance to uh, Wire's I Am The Fly. Hold on to that thought, because we're going to talk about Wire a bit more in a few minutes' time. Before we move on, if I've got one criticism of this song, and of a, a few tracks on this album, it's that the vocals are a little bit low in the mix. 
not to the extent that it's distracting, but it's yeah, they're quite low in the mix. Um, I didn't, I didn't really feel that. I've, I was, I was happy with the um, levels of the vocals. Okay, fair enough. Maybe it's just me. M- move on. Yeah, let's go to the next one. Annie, written by Donna Matthews and Justine's best friend, and at that time Graham Coxon's partner Jane Oliver. It's a tribute to Annie Holland. One minute, fourteen seconds. It doesn't stick around. It's about getting pissed. It has two references to Holston Pills, 90s. <laughs> the heavy guitars are great. It's dead punky. And the bass work in it is absolutely phenomenal. It is great, isn't it? I, I, all I've said is it's a, it's a nice piece of guitar pop. Love it. I absolutely love it. Length is great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so shall we, I've got it's great. It, yeah, it's really good. I like it a lot. I've got nothing else to say. Should we move on? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Oh, one thing I didn't say in the background of this album, and I need to bring out now, because it's certainly the case on this next track. So with connections, the next track, sorry. Keyboards on this track were played by Damon Albarn. Do you know what he is credited as on the sleeve notes? I do indeed, because I have it in my notes. Dan Abnormal. Dan Abnormal. So uh, the alter ego is back again. Well, obviously, before The um, Great Escape. Uh, Yes, indeed. Of course, before The Great Escape. Okay, so, yeah, he plays on this track because this track is Connection. As I said, it was the third single, 10th of October, 94. It reached number 17 in the UK, and as I said, 53 in the US. In a retrospective interview for the BBC in 2007, Anthony Lever said that Connection was the blueprint for what Britpop should sound like. It was punchy pithy and built on a massive ripoff of a wire riff that they didn't care about. Well, if it's good enough for Oasis, <laughs> that's a good point. We've talked <laughs> about Noel Gallagher and plagiarism an awful lot. <laughs> so it's time to talk about Justine Frischman and plagiarism. So I mentioned wire when we went through lineup. This one, the opening riff is very similar to the opening riff of Three Girl Rumba by Wire. And that's what makes Connection so memorably catchy, really. Mm-hmm. So Wire sued the band for plagiarism regarding both Connection and Lineup. It was settled out of court. Of that court case, Wire's Colin Newman himself said pop is self-referential. They're genuine fans who probably see themselves as bringing the music they love to a wider audience. So that was a quote from an interview with The Independent in 2011. It's like, well, fair enough, but you still sued them, so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you you were fine with them being fans until you saw they were making quite a lot of money off it. It's like, we'll have some of that. Quite. Despite all that, despite the plagiarism, what a fucking tune this is. Fucking hell. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you may have nicked the riff, but from the opening bars, it absolutely grabs you and it doesn't let go through the whole song. It's an absolute classic. Justine sounds great on it. She does. The hook to it is is phenomenal. It is a classic tune. Like, it doesn't matter how many times you hear it. And the way, obviously, you have that opening and then the big crash where it, everyone comes in. It's brilliant. It's just, it's great. Huge drums, huge guitars, loads of fuzz. I fucking love Connection. Yeah, it's an absolute classic. It is. It is an absolute classic. It's one of the most iconic songs of the 90s. And testament to that is the fact that as recently as 2019, was it? It was on used on the soundtrack to the, the Marvel film, Captain Marvel. 
as well as having previously been the theme tune to Trigger Happy TV from Tom Charlie. Indeed. Yeah, I, I can't speak any more highly of it. It's great. I mean, it's it's one of those ones, like, similar to some other classic songs that we talked about, is that you get to it and you, it's just this behemoth. It's just really, really good. Um, and after that, you, you don't have a huge amount more to say about yeah. it. Yeah, but again... What you got? Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, two and a half minutes. Fuck off. There you go. Done. Great. Perfect. <laughs> Are you going to say it or am I? Take, Take notes. Noel Gallagher. Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to edit that so we say it in sync. <laughs> okay. Car song. This was released in North America as a single in January 1996, also in Australia at the same time. It reached number six in Australia, number 14 on the Canadian alternative chart, and number 33 on the US alternative chart. It's about having sex in and on cars. <laughs> Dogging. Well, yeah. Uh, I love this song. I think the lyrics are... So we talk... I'm glad you said song there. <laughs> To be clear, <laughs> I am not, have never been, and likely never will be into docking. <laughs> and for for those of you who don't know what docking is, I refuse to explain it on this podcast. Google. If you want to Google it, that is up to you. I take no responsibility for any repercussions and ramifications that may don't come. Don't do it on your work's laptop. <laughs> God, no, T-N-S-F-W. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, so I just want to call out one of the lyrics on this. Every shining bonnet makes me think of my back on it. <laughs> it's great. So what do you think about the song? I really like Car Song and I always have. It's fun. It's wry. It is. A, so we said it's not very arch. Uh, this one is very arch. But I like fun. So my note on it, not really too keen on it. Sounds a bit great escapey. Oof. Harsh. And it's, I suppose it's lines like that that I took again, really. So we have a difference of opinion here. I've always liked Car Song. I think it's got a great rhythm to it. That drum beat, that bass line that walks up and down all through it. No, you're wrong. I like it. Well, okay. You can have your, you can live with your wrong opinion. Nope. What I will say, in within the rhythm is a definite nod to madness. I'm driving in my car. Yeah. It's fun. So we talked about this a bit when we went to Blur. And you said Great Escapey. The problem with Great Escape is, well, you did the whole Del Boy, you know, they didn't just lean into it. They, they lent so much they'd fallen over. This is one song on an album of 15 tracks rather than we did it with Part Life and we've gone. I, I think you're being a bit harsh there, mate, to be honest with you. I mean, I suppose because when we listened to this, it was after listening to The Great Escape, so it did bring that to mind. I could have quite easily said it's a bit sort of a blur pastiche. Yeah, I can see that, but um, I think it's got a bit more to offer than that. Okay, but, you know, fair, fair enough. I wasn't keen on it. Before we move on, I do want to just mention the video directed by Spike Jones. So it shows the band, well... It shows Justin Wells, Justine Frischman, and Donna Matthews, but not Annie Holland, and I'll explain why later on. Uh, driving around Tokyo as a sort of futuristic Ghostbusters, they chase a spectre who turns into Godzilla. <laughs> it's a mad video. Okay. 
<laughs> I mean, it's a mad video. It's a Spike Jones video. So yes, of course, it's a mad yeah. video. But other than the fact that they drive around in a car during the video, it bears no resemblance to the subject matter whatsoever. But it's fun. It's poppy. I like it. So um, you're wrong. Bye. All right. Smile. Really like this. No, I was telling you to smile. <laughs> uh, no, I really like smile as well. And I'm not surprised you like it because I've written, this sounds very New York hardcore. It's but like the intro. The intro is great to it. Yeah. It's dead punky. Um, and it's got a, like the length of the song is great. Like it doesn't hang around. It gets the job done dead quick, but really well. Uh, yeah, really well. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, uh, there's some really good harmonies in the chorus, uh, which I like a bit of harmony. Yeah, I mean, well, we've we've rhapsodized about uh, the Beach Boys before, so you know, we're Quite so. both <laughs> we're both fans of a harmony. Do you know what the song is about? I do not. It is about an unfaithful lover. So lyrically, because I know from the look in your eyes, you were talking to some girl who's seen you on her TV set. She said she just felt like she knew you, although you'd only just met. I wonder if that's about anyone in particular. Hmm. I mean, apropos of nothing, in a 2017 interview with The Times, Justine Frischman said of her relationship with Damon Orban that we were under a lot of pressure. We didn't see a great deal of each other once everything started up. And he was drinking a lot. It was chaotic. And looking back, we just couldn't have survived. We weren't mature enough. I don't know why I felt like reading that quote there, but um, yeah, there you go. Well, and I suppose Damon has, um, in his in his songwriting, been very clear about some of the issues that uh, Justine may have had. Yes, indeed. Beetle bomb. <clears throat> well, and um, no distance. Indeed. Yeah, I like Smile. Shall we move on to Hold Me Now? Yeah, let's go. And I have written that this has a nice funky style disco rhythm to it. So I, I didn't I didn't write funky rhythms here, but I said boss bass. <laughs> yes, it has got a boss bass, boss drums. Uh, well, as I said, yeah. the, Justin Welsh and Annie Holland are they're just incredibly tight throughout the song. It's another one that just stops at the end as well. And as I said, I just I like songs that just fuck off with them. <laughs> the only criticism I might have about it is that it maybe doesn't go anywhere. Whilst I like all the constituent elements, it maybe doesn't do enough. It was never going to be a single. No, it's it's an album song. Yeah, I see what you mean there. I like it, but it's not remarkable compared to other yeah. tracks. So this is about being in an unsatisfying relationship with a distant lover. Hold me now. Don't keep your distance. I'd take someone else if I could. Incidentally, just because it seems an appropriate time to bring it up, same interview from The Times about her relationship with uh, Damon Albarn, Justin Fishman said... I think it was hard for Damon when Elastica started getting some success in America. It's funny because we both thought we were too evolved for a classical gender roles. But looking back, he thought his band more important because he was the guy. And on some level, I did too. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And it's, it is worth saying that really until song two, which was what, two years after this, Blur had barely made an impression in the States. Yeah, it was very much the Blur album that led to them having a sort of presence in the States, really. Because they started copying Pavement and Granddaddy. <laughs> well, they did. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's their best album, but they did. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, uh, I quite like Hold Me Now, but as we said, it's not remarkable. 
So shall we go on to S-O-F-T? Yes, let's. According to Donna Matthews, who wrote the song, it stands for Same Old Fucking Thing. So I have said this is very Pixies. Quiet, loud, quiet, loud. Snap. (laughs) And I'm going to say that is a good thing. It is a very good thing. Um, Being sounding like Pixies is never, never a bad thing. So my verbatim notes, again, uh, song has a much heavier sound than their contemporaries, sounds much more akin to the US stuff at the time. It sounds really Pixies. There you go. (laughs) I don't have anything else to say about it other than I really like it. Yeah, because it sounds like the Pixies. So I'm all all about that. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And then we go on to Indian song. Which doesn't really fit with anything else on here. No, it does not. It's a really, I said, it's a very weird choice for the album. When it gets going, I don't mind it, but it's very jarring compared to what you've had for the seven tracks previous and what you're going to hear after. It's Listen, I like psychedelic music. You like psychedelic music. We've spoken about that before, but... I don't come to Elastica for psychedelic music. No, not at all. And it kind of contradicts, this song contradicts everything I've been saying before because it does sound really Beatles influenced, mm-hmm. um, but with a with a kind of modern or modern at the time twist on it. it. It's an interesting sound, but it sits in the middle of this album away from everything else. It, I mean, it breaks up the sound. It does. But I, I, it doesn't work in, in on the album, I think. No, I agree with you. As I say, I don't mind it as a song in itself. I would really love to know whose decision it was to make a new wave version of Within You Without You. Because that's what it is. Yeah, basically. It's weird and a very strange choice for the album. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. So there you go. Okay. So before we go on to Blue, I want to call out the distinctly unimaginative song title of Indian Song. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) It sounds a bit Easterny. Let's what do we call it? Let's call it Indian song. I mean, that's very much like when you sort of putting the song together. Oh, which which one are we doing doing now? Oh yeah, we're playing Indian song, the Indian song, <laughs> and they just never bother, yeah, never exactly. bother changing the title. Working title. No. Hey, right, should we move on to Blue? Yeah, let's go. Okay, so it was written by Donna Matthews. She claimed it was basically a composite of a load of newspaper clippings that she'd assembled together, which makes sense when you look at the lyrics because they are about absolutely fuck all. Do you recommend I wait a while? Direct and live or keep it? Constant and selective blue. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> I like it, though, yeah. a lot. It, again, dead punky. And yeah, I really like it. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't hang around. It doesn't hang around. One of my favourite things about this song is there's a bit of a fake-out start in that you think it's going to be a bit of a ballad almost. Yeah. And then you get one, two, three, four. And like you said, it's just a really great bit of punky guitar pop. Everyone loves it. What do you want? Lovely stuff. Great guitar pop song. And uh, yeah, it doesn't stick around. So nor are we going to. Okay. Next one. All Nighter. And um, what's this about, Kev? I've no idea. We've been up all night. I can feel a strange attraction. Now it's getting light, but I can't spur you into action. Till you're not alone, but I'm still on my own. Oh. <laughs> Poor Damon. He, he is getting it, getting it bad here. Maybe Pele can help. 
<laughs> um, yes, this is a song about male impotence. And all I've said, much like Car Song, it's fun, it's wry, it's knowing, it's catchy, and I like it. I like this one. I My notes said, relentless driving guitars, great drumming. The drumming in it's fantastic. Yes, the drumming in it is fantastic, as it is pretty much throughout the album. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. But yeah, I, I have nothing else to say. It's a really good song. I like it a lot. Yeah, it is. It's really good. So yeah, let's move on to the next. All right, Waking Up. So this is the fourth single that was released on the album, February 1995. It reached number 13 in the UK, their highest charting single in this country. The main riff contains, again, something of a marked similarity to The Stranglers' No More Heroes. Again, The Stranglers publishes sued Elastica for plagiarism. Again, that case was settled out of court. So The Stranglers got a writing credit on the song. And then do you know what they were awarded in terms of royalties? I do not. They were awarded 40% of the album's royalties. Exactly. So bear in mind, they'd already been sued by Wire. 40% 40% of the album's royalties. And I'm sorry, I've not quoted it, but Steve Lamatt basically said they were backed into a corner. The album was about to come out. What did they do? Did they delay the album and, and risk? Well, lose the buzz, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's what they did. 40%. Do you think Justin Frischman and uh, Richard Ascroft has got some sort of focus group somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> so, JJ Bunnell from The Stranglers, he didn't seem too bothered about the whole thing. He said... Yes, it sounds like us, but so what? Of course there's plagiarism, but unless you live in a vacuum, there's always going to be. It's the first thing our publishers have done for us in 20 years, but if it had been up to me, I wouldn't have bothered. And I think it's worth saying that, and this is going back to when we were talking about Michael Jackson and the Beatles, Mm -hmm. it's not always necessarily the artists themselves that are behind these cases, it's the music publishers, and that was certainly the case here. Although, to be fair, J.J. Aiden-Bell does admit, yeah, we got a few quid out of it, so... Well, and certainly from from stuff I've read, this is likely to become much more of a thing. The So the, the value and demand for publishing uh, and obtaining publishing rights for the biggest bands has become a massive market. Like, it's always been mm-hmm. a big thing, but venture capitalists are cha- are chasing publishing rights, and you will see far more of these cases because if you've if you've got a financial stake in it, that you are going to protect your copyright far more aggressively than potentially has been done in the past. Yes, because if we were in the current the current situation, the Stones would have would never have been a band. Zeppelin certainly at the start, would (laughs) would never have got off the ground because they basically nicked their entire sound and earth from black artists who's come before. Clapton. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Clapton could just be uh, on a street railing against um, masks. (laughs) Him and Van Morrison. Kev, you know Clapton would be on a fucking harbour in Kent having to go at people in dinghies. (laughs) (laughs) That's staying in, but I'm not going to talk about it anymore. (laughs) Be out there with fucking. <laughs> I'm going to edit that out because I don't want his name associated <laughs> with this fucking. Do you know what? I'm going to bleep it. <laughs> oh god. Um. Can we get back to waking up? Yeah, because it's actually a really great song. It's it's a fucking belt. It's got a great intro. It's a boss use of feedback, and and the solo in it is is phenomenal as well. It is phenomenal. Yeah, so me- musically, it's great. And again, it's another one, as I've said, with connection. I don't care they nick the riff. 
It's a fucking great use yeah. of it. It's a great song. Also, 14-year-old me really, really identified with the lyrics to this song. <laughs> I work very hard, but I'm lazy. I've got a lot of songs, but they're all in my head. I get a guitar and a lover who pays me. If I can't be a star, I won't get out of bed. It's right. <laughs> yeah, that's basically every 14-year-old. You know? <laughs> exactly. And I also like the um, subtle reference to, was it Linda Evangelista who said, if we don't get yeah. 10 grand, we're not getting out of bed. Yeah, it's great. Big fan of Waking Up. Really good song. Yeah, I mean, I've got nothing more to add to it. It's it's just really good. It's a classic. It is a classic. Another classic. All right. Two to one. To me, this song, it's a really good tempo change. It's different to what's been before, but not in the jarring way that uh, the Indian song was. It's, yep. And it sounds, it's really cinematic. I'm surprised that no one's... Or has someone used it? Because, yeah, because it, it it does have that kind of wide-angle landscape thing going to, going for it. So, and you'll know, as soon as I say it, you'll know it, and you'll know exactly the scene. It's on the train spotting soundtrack. Of course it is. It, it's an, it's, so it's the scene where, so Renton's moved down to London. Yeah, yeah. And Sick Boy comes down, and he ends up flogging his telly to pay for Skag. Yeah. It's in that scene. And it's exactly what I've said. It has got a great cinematic quality to it. It's and Danny Boyle is is as is Edgar Wright is fantastic at picking songs to fit the mood of a particular scene, mm-hmm. and it's a really really good song. Yeah, I like is. two to one. So before I talk about the song, I, I should have said sorry. This is the point at which the track listing on the US and the UK versions of the album start to diverge. So again, if American listeners are going, hang on, two to one's not next. He's in this country, soz. Uh, if you go on Wikipedia, it's got the track listings. So I don't know. You figure out and rewind the podcast <laughs> as you want to. Or just listen to us rambling about shite. No one actually cares about our opinions about the music, I'm sure. No, they're, they're here for references to 1980s British telly and... Talk about dogging. <laughs> dogging, purple and um, <laughs> I don't know, Cupra and all chat. Oh, on big font chat as well. No one ever owned up to uh, taking an acoustic guitar to a party and play Wonderwall, <laughs> though. And I'm sorry, given I I know the demographic of listeners to this show, and fucking some of you are too scared to own up. Absolutely, one of you's dead. <laughs> and I bet I bet the reason that you've not admitted to it is because part of you like, well, if I went to a party and there was an acoustic knocking about, yeah, they probably still would. Don't do it. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear it. I'm telling you, stand by me. That's the surefire success. <laughs> Should we go back to talking about Elastica? Yeah, let's do it. Do you know what two to one is about? I do not. Really? Okay, uh, fair enough. Let me just. So it's impossible to know which is the proper order, the best position to be in. Sandman comes two to one in the dark, dark reflections in my head, in my bed again. Any ideas? <laughs> Possibly. It's about threesomes. Yeah. So there's, there's a real theme of this album. This this album is about sex. Most of the <laughs> songs in this album are about sex. This one is about threesomes. And again, it's 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 subtle. And it's got that, not sinister edge to it. It's got that little bit of darkness to the rhythm, to the way the vocals are a little bit lower. It's not as upbeat, as punky, as poppy as before. And it's we talked about this and I'm going to really draw some strange parallels here, but please bear with me. We went through Scream of Delica last week, Higher Than The Sun. We said, well, you know, this is the point in the high where it could go bad here. I'm not quite sure. 
this has got that similar air to it. I've got this. I'm having this experience. It's a bit weird. Could go well, could go bad. I'm not sure. This is all a bit strange. And I really like it. I think this is a really, really clever song. So we've talked about Jarvis Cocker's, like the darker side, the seedier side of, of the human experience. And it, it it's different from that, but it's um, it, it's certainly within the same universe. Of, of that kind it of thing. It definitely is. They, they, it is uh, the Britpop cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would say that, and I love Pulp, but Jarvis is nowhere near this subtle in his lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> but he is a CD. <laughs> he is a CD. The only thing Jarvis stopped short of is I can't ever recall him using the word gusset in a song. <laughs> Which is one of the seediest words in the English language. <laughs> gusset is, is not a nice word. Neither's moist. <laughs> moist gusset, goodness <laughs> me. Oh, dear me. <laughs> right. Speaking of which, Vaseline. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear me. Vaseline. Hmm. What's it about, Kev? No idea. First thing I'll say is other petroleum ointments are available. <laughs> other lubricants are available. <laughs> hmm. So, Justine Frischman claimed that the song was apparently inspired when she was in the bathroom with Damon Albarn. She was looking for something to write about. The first thing he saw <laughs> was a pot of Vaseline. And he suggested she write about that. Bollocks. Yeah, not having that. I am not having it for a second. I don't care. It's another one. It's throwaway. It's funny. It's wry. It lasts for a minute, 20 seconds. It's fucking great. I love Vaseline. Verbatim notes. It's a really fun song with a, fu- with a fun chorus. It's a bit throwaway, but it doesn't hang around too long. There you go. Exactly. One last thing to say. So Vaseline was one of the tracks on the EMI demo, which helped get the band some, mm-hmm. some traction. And and you can tell, and this isn't a criticism at all, but you can tell it sounds very raw. It sounds very punky. It sounds yeah. very, yeah, good stuff. Should we move on, though? Yeah, let's move on to the next one. Never Here. Now, I'm not going to ask cryptic questions. This song is about Brett Anderson. Indeed it is. And I have noted that down as well. We were sitting in waiting, and I told you my plan. You were far too busy writing rhymes that didn't scan. And you lent me your records, and I lent you an ear. Funny how it seems to be now that you were never here, never really here. So, interestingly enough, in a 2002 interview with The Observer, Justine Frischman said that suede songs were too long and indulgent. No fun. <laughs> so... Again, with her talking about her time in in Suede, like she said that she was happy to leave because she was tired of being the token girl playing guitar at the back. And mm-hmm. I mean, and if particularly if you're in a band with Bernard Butler who likes a solo, yep, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna be having a fun time. Nope. What do you think of Never Here? Really like it. So it's really well put together. It's got a pixie sound to it again. And it's, yeah, it's every, like all the constituent elements are really good. And I do like a song with a bit of bitterness to it. And it has got, it's got a lovely bit of lemon in it. Yeah, I I agree. There's a but for me though. Considering the brevity of the vast majority of songs on this album, does it really need to take over a minute for the lyrics to start here? I like it. I like it a lot. I agree with everything you've said. It's biting. It's, it's bitter. It's, 
really well produced if you want to talk about it musically, mm-hmm. but it sticks around a bit longer than I think it deserves to. I've got to say, hmm, interesting. We are really switching roles yeah, here because, like, I didn't feel that at all. Like, I liked the extended introduction to it, but I think. I think because everything else on the album is so short, you, they've kind of earned it by this point to have a little bit, little bit of indulgence. Yeah, okay, I I get it. I just think the way it's sandwiched in between what one minute twenty seconds of Vaseline and, and Stutter, which is two minutes something, it sticks out a bit like a sore thumb. I like the song. I like the song a lot. I just think you could shave 45 seconds off it and I'd like it a lot more. The album does have some interesting decisions in terms of its ordering. Yeah, okay. Shall we go on to the final track, Stutter? Yeah. So as I mentioned, it was the debut single, uh, limited edition in the UK. What I didn't say is that in August 95, it was released as a single in the US. It got to number 67 on the Hot 100. What's this one about, Kev? Again, no idea. Like it's it's really subtle. Is it something you lack when I'm flat on my back? Is it something I can do for you? It's always someone you hate, or is it something you ate? Tell me, is it the way that I touch you? Have you found a new lay? And is she really that great? Is it just that I'm too much for you? Fucking hell, Damon. <laughs> Poor fella. Is everything okay, lad? <laughs> do you need an intervention? <laughs> It needs a fluffer from the sound of things. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I really like it. Yeah. It's rawer than anything else on the album. Although, whilst I like that the album finishes with it, because of how raw it sounds, it seems a bit weird. And particularly with the song before. I ah, see, there you go. That's my only issue with it. Like, Musically, it's great, and it, it, it's it got that garage sound. It's got a rawness to it. The Everything else sounds a bit more polished to this. It sounds like a, their demo, which is obviously, you know, what it was. So, yes, this, this was another one off the EMI demo. I'm going to challenge you a little bit. I agree with everything you've said there. I, I, I've said you've got a playful rhythm to it, but there's an emotional rawness to the song and a raw sound to it. I've said that, so, again, we are hive mind, but... Your problem with this song isn't with this song, it's with the song that went before. Yeah, well, it's it's to do with position on the album. Ordering. Yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is what I said on the last song, is that the, there are some issues with where things are in the album. I think if you swapped Never Here and, let's say, Hold Me Now, mm-hmm. you'd be a lot more comfortable with it. I think this is a really good way to end. I think to end it in a... It's up-tempo and poppy, but it's raw, emotionally and musically. I think it's a really good way to end an album like this. You've had 15 tracks, less than 40 minutes, and it's all been a lot of fun. And it ends it it ends as it starts. Fun. I mean, what what we can definitely say is that we've done albums of this length before, and some of them have felt like absolute fucking slogs. Some of the albums that we've done where there there are fewer tracks and they've really had to work our way through them. This fucking flies through. Like you, yes, you you get to the to this song and it's like Christ, I've hardly spent any time on this. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bit of peeling back the curtain on this. So we've been through 15 tracks in just over three quarters of an hour, and it's not because we've got nothing to say about them. It's because we bounce along. We don't get bogged down in things. And that, to me, speaks to the effervescence of the album. 
and how I, how we felt about it. And that's a, that's a, a lovely way of describing it to say it is it is effervescent. It is the youthful vigor has been channeled and bottled into this album. Mm-hmm. This isn't this isn't an album that would be recorded by you know mid thirties artists who's like five or six albums down. This is a debut of people yeah. in their twenties who are full of it and ready to go. And that that's yeah. what they've they've managed to record here is the sound of youth. Absolutely perfectly put. With that, shall we go on to some reviews? Yes, we should. Okay. So speaking at the time in the enemy, Johnny D said. Speaking to exactly what you just said, Kev, the album was fun, lovable, and exciting. Elastica's debut burps out of the speakers like a pissed kid on a space hopper. <laughs> that's great imagery. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lovely uh, review, that. Someone we've quoted a number of times before in his retrospective on all music, Stephen Thomas Irwine said, what makes Elastica such an intoxicating record is not only that the 16 songs, again, he's obviously speaking about the US version, in 40 minutes, but that they're nearly all classics. Even if the occasional riff sounds like an old wave group, sounds like rips off, okay. (laughs) The simple fact is that hardly any new wave band made records this consistently rocking and melodic. Agreed entirely. Indeed. So this guy is the opposite to Nobby McGee. We quote him a lot, but we generally pretty much agree with what he says. Yeah, and and he has absolutely nailed it. Before I get on to Nobby McGee, for Pitchfork in a 2017 retrospective, Judy Berman said the pithy songs on Elastica with their searing lyrics about sex, groupies and ennui capture the whirlwind of early 90s Britpop's explosion. Yeah, again, it's it was a scene of vibrancy, of youthfulness. And, and although we've spoken about how the band thematically and, and sonically didn't necessarily fit with that sound, there's an atmospheric similarity that she calls out there, which I kind of agree mm-hmm. with. Do you have any reviews to speak of or shall... I do not. I, am, I think it's time to get on to his knobby ship. So what did Robert Criscale said? So he was writing for The Village Voice when he wrote this. Punk pop, a self-consciously non-canonical market play, wound tight as a methadrine high. Buzzcocks weren't deep. Wire wasn't deep. But these sassy London girls are shallow on principle, extenuating their desperation of a fun they refuse to grant any emotional resonance. I love their bright, tough veneer and hectic sexuality. I'll happily get juiced on their quick charge, and I can imagine myself discarding them without a second thought. After all, they're asking for it. God, I hate him. Like, what does he think of, you know, like the songs in there? Just absolute pseudo bollocks. I mean, I mentioned the comparison to Stephen Thomas Irwin, and perhaps we are polarised in our views, but at least Stephen Irwin talks about what he thinks of the frigging songs. (laughs) (sighs) Sorry, guys. I ain't going to get rid of him. No, he, he is a core element because he just annoys us. Legacy. Uh, there's a lot to talk about on Legacy. When the album came out, it was the fastest selling debut since Definitely Maybe, which might not sound spectacular because that was only released a year before. But the significance of that is that was a record that was held until the Arctic Monkeys debut was released in 2006. So as debut albums go, this was a huge success. Yeah, definitely. Their success in the US, which you've already talked about, led them to tour the US four 
times through 1995, including part of the Lollapalooza tour. And they did that alongside touring commitments and festival commitments in the UK. So they were basically hopping across the Atlantic every 20 minutes. And then it basically all went fuck up. They were burned out. With that work rate, I'm not surprised. No, it's it's not a surprise at all. If you're, you know, touring the UK and the US consecutively for a, for a year, then you're going to be absolutely bollocks. Yep. So Annie Holland, during one of their trips back to the UK to play Tea in the Park, the Fail Festival in Ireland and Big Day Out, basically decided she had enough. I referred to that Radio 1 documentary back in 2000. In that, she said we were being shipped from tour bus to hotel, then photos, interviews, then more photos, more interviews. Then you'd go in for a sound check, then photos and interviews. Just got ridiculous. And I said, as soon as I hit England, that's it. I'm not going back. So she left on the eve of going on Lollapalooza. So for the remainder of Lollapalooza, Melissa Aftermar from Hull, she played a couple of shows with them, but the majority of the gigs were filled in by Beck's session bassist, Abby Travis. Justin Welsh and Donna Matthews became romantically involved. That did not end well at all. And that left Justine Frischman to pick up the pieces and deal with the fallout from that. Donna Matthews got involved with heroin. She ended up leaving the group in 1999. And according to Justine Frischman, Donna Matthews said to Justine, I don't like your songs. I don't like your voice. I don't like the way you play guitar. It makes me cringe. And I'm going. I mean, that's fairly definitive. <laughs> yeah, as, as leaving statements go, you're not leaving the door ajar for you to return. It is not an amicable separation. <laughs> Annie Holland, she rejoined around that time in 1999 and with a new lineup, they started recording what would become their second album, The Menace. In 1999, they released a six-track EP, which was basically made up of demos from, so there were several abandoned sessions in the space between end of 95 and this EP in 99. And the lead track from that EP, uh, which was called How He Wrote Elastic Command, featured vocals from Marky Smith from The Fall, going back to the influences that we talked about right at the start. Mm -hmm. Then in 2000, April of 2000, The Menace, the second album, was released eventually. And it had positive reviews initially, but it performed poorly commercially, only reached number 24 in the UK. And I'm going to call back to something we said on our second ever clash when we were going through Second Coming. Five years, the momentum was gone. The lineup changes, the absence from the public eye, drug issues. Because what I haven't mentioned, Justine Frischman had also become involved in, in heroin, and that was part of the reason that her and Damon split up. And as you said, Beetlebum, No Distance Left to Run, Blur songs, both called out to that. The momentum was gone, and they re-emerged into a completely different world, a completely different industry. And... Um, it, it just, it killed them. They re-emerged entirely at the wrong point. And I suppose like 2000, like the best performing indie band at that time was probably Travis. Christ. Yeah. Had they re-emerged 2001, 2002, you've got the First Strokes album, you've got Interpol, you've got the re-emergence of that kind of sound. 
So unfortunately, when they came back out, they came back out at the entirely wrong point and had lost their audience. I think it's also worth saying the menace isn't very good. So it's it's not an album that I, I will hold my hand up. I, I've never listened to it. So their comeback gig was at Reading in 99 and I saw it and it was great. Great to see Elastica, but the new material, it just wasn't very good. It was it was none of the fun that the debut was. And as you said, you can't replicate that. That's a debut album. That's young, effervescent youth coming through on record. So you're not expecting that. But it was, it was as if Kid A had been released as Ash's second album. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's a hell of a description. It was a dark old album. Yeah. Which is not a surprise given given what had been going on. Well, exactly. And I'm not keen on it. Okay, so yeah, in 2001, they released their what became their farewell single, The Bitch Don't Work. Shortly afterwards, they announced their amicable, amicable breakup. In 2005, Justine Frischman, she moved to the US. She now lives in San Francisco, and she's basically, she's carved herself out a really successful career as an abstract artist. Donna Matthews, she recovered from her heroin problems. She now, she's a pastor in Devon. Uh, Justin Welsh, he plays drums uh, in a band called Proshka, who are signed to Bella Union Records, who I know is a label that you have spoken fondly about mm-hmm. in the past. So, yeah, it, lightning in a bottle, and they were not able to recreate that magic. And it was, well, Justine Frischman has, has said that she wishes Elastica had been a one-album project, and I can see why. Yeah, whilst I haven't, as I say, I haven't heard the album, there, there would be something beautiful about it just being this one album of capturing that effervescence, capturing youth, capturing the sound of what of where they were and what was going on at that time. Like the Lars? Yeah, it's not that their legacy isn't sullied by that second album. It's just that it doesn't have the beautiful symmetry that you would like. It doesn't have any profile. It's not even like the second coming where you no. can go, it, it's just something that happened. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm aware they had a second album, but until you said the name of it, I actually didn't know the name the name yeah. of it. And as I said, I, I, I don't like it. And again, for any listeners that do like it, fair play. It, to me, it's not Elastica. And um, that's all I'll say on that. Shall we go on to best song, worst song, or is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I think I think it's it's right to move on. All right. Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So best song, it's really easy and it's dead obvious. There's loads of there's loads of really good stuff on here that I really like and the songs are great. But the best song on this album is without question connection because it's a fucking banger. And it's perfect. In terms of my worst song, really, it's it's car song. Didn't like it. As I said, it had a kind of blur pastiche to it that didn't didn't really work for me. How about yourself? Hmm. Interesting. I'll do my worst song first. I really like car song, so you're full of shit on that. Sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> it's Indian song. It doesn't fit on the album, and you said that as well. And as much as you may have thought Car Song is a pastiche of something, at least tonally it fits on the album. Indian Song is off something completely... It's No, it doesn't fit on this album. It's I don't dislike it, but it's not what I listened to Elastica for. 
And I honestly do not know what it expects of me. It's a really weird choice. It's easily the weakest song on this album. Sorry, Kev, but it is. Best song. So I want to give honourable mentions to Waking Up, S-O-F-T, and to Car Song. Shit house. No, sorry. They're all great. So the obvious choice is Connection, but I'm feeling in a contrarian mood today, and I don't want for Connection. I'm going line up. It's the first Elastica song I heard. It's a real statement opening to the album. Lineup's my favourite song on this album. It's a great song, so I'm not. I'm not gonna. Ha- I don't have an issue with you picking it as a, as uh, as the best song on the album. Okay, I think that's probably about it, isn't it? I think. I think we are done. So you are going to take us through coming up by Suede on next week's show. I will be. Just before we finish, as usual, what's your Twitter stuff? So I'm I'm not really going to go into um, what's been happening on Twitter recently. I really want to say that obviously in the la- relatively recently we have lost uh, Lee Scratch Perry, an amazing amazing artist, amazing producer who has had such a huge influence over over music for a, a, a long period of time and was dead good live as well. So you may have seen stuff related to him on Twitter. If you want to check check us out on Twitter, our Twitter handle is at Clash Album. If you like quality curated content that actually gets um, some traction, then um, you can check out our Insta, Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely old school, you can go to albumclash at gmail.com. So that's great. And I agree with everything you said about Lee Scratch Perry. All I'm going to say is that would be a lot more impactful if our Twitter account had actually tweeted something about Lee Scratch Perry <laughs> when he died. Kevin, who can I speak to that administers our Twitter account to complain about this? Um, that would be me. <laughs> but I had the Rona at the time, so that's my excuse. No, you're absolutely right. Sadly missed Lee Scratch Perry. Check out some of his stuff because he's really good. Yeah. That's about it for this week then. As always, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe to the show, tell your friends. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We've done loads of these and you're still listening, so it means a lot to us. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week. All right, take care. This has been Album Clash. I've been Tim. I've been Kev. Turn on, Ta-da, bye.